Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You'll find those verses on page 1002 if you are uh, using one of the church's Bibles. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the reading of God's Word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father, we come before You humbly now, asking that by Your Word, You would nourish us to grow up in our salvation, that we might no longer be children tossed to and fro by the winds and every wave of doctrine, Father, but that You might cause us, through the power of your Spirit, to grow up into mature manhood, into the stature of the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Father, this is what we ask boldly in the name of Christ, and for his name's sake. Amen. When was the last time that you gave up? I mean, when was the last time that The endeavor to which you had given considerable time and effort. Most of us don't like thinking about our failed projects. We don't like remembering those times when we gave up. But I suspect that if you reflect upon those times in your life when you have given up, given up on something of importance, given up on something significant, you will see that giving up often follows closely on the heels of losing hope. When you start to believe that you aren't going to make it, when you start to believe that you are not going to reach your goal, and really that there's no way you could ever possibly reach your goal, it's hard to keep going. And the moment that we lose hope is usually followed quickly by the moment we give up. And that is the sort of position in which the Hebrews who received this letter found themselves. They had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we saw that back in chapter 2. Remember, they had heard it from those who had heard it from Christ himself. They, they had heard the gospel that, that Jesus is the one, that he is the anointed who, who comes to bring to fulfillment all of God's promises. He is the one in whom the kingdom of God will come and be established on earth as it is in heaven. They had heard the gospel of his death as the ransom for the lives of sinners. 
That his blood was poured out as the propitiation, as the, the sacrifice that, that turned away the wrath of God. They had heard the gospel and they had received the gospel and they had believed upon Jesus Christ for their salvation. But it didn't seem to be working. He hadn't saved them, at least not from the sufferings of this life. In fact, since they had come to believe in Jesus, things had only gotten worse. And therefore they had come to doubt. They had, they had come to, to doubt His ability to, to save them from their sufferings, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. I mean, if He couldn't save them now, why should they trust Him with the life to come? They were beginning to doubt. They were beginning to lose hope. And because they were losing their hope, they were considering giving up. They were considering giving up on Jesus. And that's the reason that the author writes this letter to them. I don't know if there are any here this morning who are considering giving up on Jesus. I don't know if there are any of you who have, who have come to that point where you're just not sure it's worth it. I suspect there may be. But I know that there are many here who are suffering in profound ways. There are people here this morning whose lives are, are entirely consumed by the heavy demands of caring for a loved one. It seems that they can do nothing else because all of their time, all of their energy is devoted to this task. There are others who are dealing with their own health issues own significant concerns. Still others are, are facing challenges at their, at their place of employment. They're, they're dealing with, with unjust business practices or malicious bosses or slanderous co-workers. Others are dealing with troubles at home, a difficult marriage or a difficult parenting situation. Still others are wrestling with their own besetting sins and personal failures. And at least a few are dealing with what seems to them to be a perpetual string of bad luck. It seems to them that in their life, anything that can go wrong does go wrong, and they can just never get their feet under them. I know these situations. Because I've, talked, I've spoken to you. I know what you're going through. In such situations, it is easy to lose hope in Jesus. Even if we know that He hasn't promised us an easy life, even if we have our theology straight, at some point it is easy for us to begin to wonder if we can trust Him. If we can trust Him with this life, if we can trust Him with the life to come. It's a question we must face. It's the question that the Hebrews were facing. It's the question that the author is addressing in these verses before us this morning. And his charge to those who are suffering, his charge to those who, who are beginning to doubt, his charge to those who are losing their hope is fairly simple. 
His charge to them is simply this. He says it in verse 6. Hold fast. Hold fast to your hope. This morning I want to help you to see what that means and, and how it is that we can actually do it. But first, I want us to see whom this charge is to and why it is so vitally important. So first, who? To whom is this charge addressed? We, we find our answer in verse 1. Notice what the author says. He, he identifies the people to whom he is writing as holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. So first, they are brothers. They are bound together by, by family ties. But remember, their, their tie is not to some ancient forefather. Their, their tie is not flesh and blood, but rather they are bound together as one family because they have one spiritual father. Remember what we saw back in, in chapter 2. They are all of one source. They are all of one origin. They are all of one father. They are children of the Heavenly Father, not by blood, but by adoption. He has made them His by His sovereign choice. They are children of the Heavenly Father, and because they are children of the Heavenly Father, they are holy. This is the second thing that He tells us. They are holy, brothers. So to be holy is to be set apart from the Lord. In the Old Testament, those things that were set apart for use in the temple were, were holy. But now we read in the New Testament that all of God's people are holy. All of God's people are, are set apart for His worship. All of God's people are set apart for His service. This is who we are in Christ. We are holy brothers. And we have received, we have shared in, we have participated in a heavenly calling. The third thing that he tells us about those to whom he is writing, they are holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Now this could mean either that they are receiving a call from heaven or that they are receiving a call to heaven. But really it makes little difference because each implies the other. If you have been called by God, you have been called to God. And if you were called to God, only God could have issued such a call. The call to heaven is a call from heaven. The call from heaven is a call to heaven because God calls us to be His own. He calls us into His family. He calls us into His service. And that is who the author is writing to. He is writing to brothers who are holy, brothers who have been called by God and, and to God. And when you take all of these descriptors together, it becomes perfectly clear, really beyond doubt, that the author is writing to people whom he regards as Christians. He is writing to professing and practicing believers. And I don't want us to miss the significance of that. Think about what that means. He is writing to people he regards as his brothers in Christ, whom he calls holy, who he knows have been called by God and, and to God, and yet he also knows that they're losing their grip on their hope. He also knows that they are considering giving up. He, he knows that they are plagued by doubts and that they are wallowed in discouragement. 
So think about what that means for you. It means that the doubts and the discouragement that you feel in the midst of your suffering do not disprove your profession of faith. Faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive in this life. Hope and discouragement can exist in the same heart. And they often do. Because this is an evil age. And this is a broken world. And we are broken people. And it hurts. And we get discouraged. Such discouragement does not mean that you are not a believer. Such discouragement does not mean that your faith is not real. But, the author does want you to know what to do with it. If you are a believer in Christ, you will feel discouragement. If you are a believer in Christ, you will feel doubt. You will wrestle with these plagues in this life. But as a believer in Christ, you must not what, know what to do with your troubles. So look again at the end of verse 6. Look, look what he says there. He says, We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. To be plagued by doubts, to be plagued by discouragement does not disprove your faith. But we must hold fast to our hope, even in the midst of our troubles. For he says, we are his house if we hold fast. Now, now to say that we are his house is, is to say that we are his household, to say that we are members of his family. It's the way that the author is is using that language here. It's the the language of household. It's the language of family. It's the language of, of community. We are part of his body. We are part of his household. If we hold fast to our hope. So the charge is obvious. We are to hold fast. We are not to to let go. But we must understand that this doesn't mean that, that we make ourselves members of his house by holding fast. That's that's not what the the author is is saying. The the way that he, he writes this makes it clear. That we are his house. Not we will become his house, but we are his house if we hold fast. Holding fast reveals who we are. It reveals our, our faith. Those who are the children of God will persevere. Those who are the children of God will stand firm. That is significant. We do not make ourselves God's children by, by holding fast. If we give up, we will not be the house of God because we never were. If we give up, whatever profession of faith we had previously made is is proven vain. John says this in his first letter. They went out from us because they were never of us. But let us not then cling to to some false hope because the, the charge still stands. In the midst of your discouragement, in the midst of your troubles, you must hold fast. That is the charge. You must. You must cling to your hope. There is no salvation without perseverance. So the question is, how do we do this then? If we must hold fast, 
if we must stand firm in our hope, if we must not be moved from the hope of the gospel which we, which we believed, how can we do this when the, the waves of our discouragement and the waves of our trouble seem so much stronger than we are? Again, this is the question that he intends to answer. And I want you to notice his prescription. How is it that we hold fast in the midst of our troubles? How is it that we hold fast when we are discouraged? How is it that we hold fast when we are beginning to doubt? Notice what he says. Consider Jesus. How do you hold fast? Consider Jesus. That's it. This is the prescription. This is what you are called to. This is how you hold fast. If you would hold fast to your hope in the face of overwhelming discouragement, consider Jesus. It's the same word that Jesus himself used when he called upon his disciples to consider the lilies. What was Jesus doing when he, when he told his disciples to consider the, the lilies? Why would he want them to, to, to consider flowers in, in the field? He wanted them to think. He wanted them to, to meditate. He, he wanted them to, to ponder. He wanted them to, to consider them that he might, so that they might derive the appropriate conclusions. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is asking us to do. He's, he's not asking us to give a fleeting thought. He's asking us to, to ponder, to, to meditate, to mold, to set our minds upon who Jesus is, and particularly who He is for us. Because He ultimately is our hope. When your circumstances cause you to doubt, when your, when your circumstances drag you into discouragement, there is no hope to be found in looking inward. There is no hope to be found in, in looking to your fellow man. Your hope is in Him. Your hope is in Christ. And so therefore, when discouragement comes, consider Jesus. And the author actually begins to, to help us do just that in these verses. First, he, he reminds us that, that Jesus is the apostle of our confession. Consider Jesus the apostle of your confession. What does, that, what does that mean? An apostle is one who is sent. Particularly, an apostle is one who is sent to speak. And so to speak of Jesus as our apostle is somewhat strange. This is actually the only place in the New Testament where, where Jesus is referred to as an apostle. Normally, we, we think of the twelve as Jesus' apostles. They are the ones that, that Jesus sent out to speak with His authority and on His behalf. But remember, Jesus said, I send you even as I was sent by my Father. And so Jesus was the, the first apostle. He was the one who was sent to, to proclaim the gospel. And I want to suggest to you that this has two profound implications. The first implication is that the, the gospel that he preached and the gospel that he sent out his apostles to preach is the gospel of God. It is not the speculation of man concerning God. It is, it is not the, the projections of man about how they would like God to be. 
As I told you earlier in the service, when we come into worship, we, we come to respond to Him, to respond to His revelation. That's why a confession of faith is at the very heart of all true worship, because we are responding to how God has revealed Himself, not how we hope He might prove to be, or how we wish He were. And so the first thing that we, we learn here is that because Jesus has come from the Father, the promises that he makes are the very promises of God. This is God's revelation of himself. This is what God has told you about how he relates to you. This is what God has told you about what he has done for you. God himself has said, I so love the world that I sent my son. God himself has said, I will Ransom for myself, my people. Not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of my own Son, Jesus Christ. It's not a gospel man made up. It is the very gospel of God. And it is the gospel concerning Jesus Christ who came. Just, just think about the significance of that. Jesus came. His love was such that he, he did not remain in heaven with the Father. He did not consider equality with, with God a thing to be grasped, but he was willing to humble himself, to take on human flesh, to take the posture of a servant, to be obedient under the law, even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus came. He entered into that suffering that you know so well. He did not exempt himself from it, but he came to be in it that he might deliver you out of it. He descended that he might ascend on high, leading many sons to glory. He is your apostle. Consider Jesus. He came into your suffering. He did not stay at a distance. He drew near that he might lead you out. But not only is he your apostle, he is also your high priest. Because he came to lead you out by offering a sacrifice, and not just any sacrifice. He came to lead you out by offering himself. You see, what separated us from the Father, what, what brought us under the misery of sin, was not some problem out there. Some problem we could point our finger at and say it's their fault. But rather, what had us trapped under the misery of sin was our sin, was our rebellion, was our treason against the Father. We were by nature objects of God's wrath, justly deserving of His full condemnation. And Christ came to rescue us from our own sins by offering Himself as the ransom. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we who were but sin might become the righteousness of God. He came to rescue us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He is our high priest who offers the once and for all perfect sacrifice of himself. That we who were justly condemned might instead receive the cup of God's blessing. He is 
our apostle. He is our high priest. And in these callings, he was the faithful one par excellence. He was the faithful one. His faithfulness greater than that of even Moses. Notice, notice what it says. That he, Moses, was, was faithful as, as a servant. And, and we see his faithfulness spelled out in, in great detail in chapter 11. We're told that, that, that Moses left Pharaoh's household. You, you remember the story, discovered by Pharaoh's daughter as a, as a little baby, brought into Pharaoh's household that, that he might be raised as a prince of, of Egypt. And yet in God's providence, his mother was brought along to teach him the truth of who he was. And so when Moses became a man, he did not cling to his status as Pharaoh's son. But rather, he refused to be called Pharaoh's son, that he might identify with his people, that he might endure mistreatment with them. He gave up the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Because he was looking to a reward. Can you imagine? Such was his faithfulness. But what does the author say? At all this, he was faithful as a servant. He was a, a servant of the Lord. He was a member of the household. He was looking forward to what would come as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. He was not the fulfillment, but he was simply one of the members of the house awaiting the fulfillment to come. Jesus, on the other hand, is faithful as the Son. He is faithful as the one who actually brings the fulfillment. Yes, like Moses, he left glory to be identified with his people. He gave up not the fleeting pleasures of sin, but the eternal pleasures of heaven to endure mistreatment with his people because his eyes were set on the reward for the joy set before him, the joy of leading many sons to glory. And all this he was faithful, not as a servant, not as a mere member of the house, but as the builder of the house. He was faithful as the son, the one in whom salvation comes. The one who actually brings the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the perfectly faithful apostle and high priest of our confession. And the author is saying that if Jesus did this, if he did this as the eternal son, if he, if he did this as the builder of all things, if he was perfectly faithful to the one who appointed him, even to the point of death on the cross, then we can trust him. Even in the midst of our doubt and discouragement, we can trust him. We can trust him to bring us even through death itself. All the way home to glory. In Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession, we have a sure and, and glorious hope. Notice what the author says. He, he speaks of our confidence and our boasting in hope. We have confidence in this hope because Christ is raised, seated even now at the right hand of the Father. 
We have confidence because it's been proven true, and we boast because it has been shown to be glorious. In Christ, we are heirs of the world to come. In Christ, the kingdom of God is ours. It is truly a sure and glorious hope. And the author wants us to see that because Jesus Christ was raised, and because He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and because He will come again according to His promise, those who hope in Him will never be put to shame. Those who hope in Him are the members of His house. And they will receive all the blessings of such in the age to come. So if you are here this morning and you are discouraged, if you are here this morning and doubt is beating against your soul, if you are here this morning and you are perplexed by God's providence in your life, look around. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters who know your condition well. We don't always share our misery with one another. We, we often put on a happy face, but I can promise you the people sitting next to you in the pews, they don't know your, the exact details of your situation, but you don't know the details of theirs either. In this broken world, we experience trouble. In this broken world, we experience pain. In this broken world, in our flesh, we are perplexed by the mystery of God's providence. But in the midst of such discouragement, in the midst of such pain, let us not lose hope, but rather let us cling to the crucified. Let us cling to the one who is our hope. For if we cling to him, he will hold on to us. Amen. He will never let us go. He will bring us all the way home. And one day, we will be revealed in full as what we are now. We will be shown to be the beloved children of God. And because such is our hope in Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let us believe it together.